periodically I come across a short book with a simple message that gets to the point quickly. For more years than I can count, I've been listening to How to Become CEO by Jeffrey Fox annually. It's great. And I was so thankful when the author said, yes, I'd love to be on the show. Jeffrey Fox, this guy is a savant. He lives on an island. Uh, He can tell you anything, just about anything in the wine industry. He used to play rugby. Uh, And by the way, I could tell on our Zoom call, he looks like he still has all of his teeth. His first three employers all became clients, including Pillsbury. And he learns one new thing annually. How to Become CEO by Jeffrey Fox. That conversation is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. probably figured out my pattern, my MO when introducing a guest. I want to hear their Clark Kent origin story. Jeffrey is more than a writer. He also runs a consulting firm. As you've alluded, the business books that I write, I don't do any research or anything. They're just based on my observations and history is a sideline. Uh, And I'm an excellent procrastinator, so they take forever. But I'll write a chapter on an airplane or something like that. But uh, essentially what happened is that after I got out of graduate school and the service, um, I went to work for three corporate quote unquote companies, uh, big Hubeline, which is a big distributor at the time to now Diageo of spirits, spirits and wines. And then uh, I went to work for a company called Pillsbury. And then I was recruited to a company called Loctite. And all three of those companies became clients the first week I started Fox and Company. So that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good thing. And all my clients since then have become word of mouth, although the books have generated considerable interest in me. And so uh, Fox and Company, which now we had to change it for legal purposes, it's called Fox Business Advisors, now out of Florida, that uh, we're still still chucking along, working with our clients on, on a lot of issues. I tend to be now consigliere to the CEOs of the midsize and smaller companies. So, w- so what, what are some of the big problems you're typically solving for them? Well, uh, the big, uh, big problems are how to get your price up to really get the value for the, all the innovation you've put in products. I call that dollarization. So companies have spent tons of money on, R&D and engineering, and they say our product is better, but they don't know how to articulate better. They'll say, well, it's faster. What does faster mean? 4.2 seconds. So you have to, A, identify the benefit, quantify the benefit, and then dollarize the value of the benefit to overcome the price objection. That's a very important thing we do for customer clients. Even the best and the brightest have problems uh, all the way down through the nook and crannies of the organization, down to the sales force of really articulating the dollarized value of their products. And we do that. You know, so I said that I read your book starting in 2014. That was the first time I read it. I did not look at the published date. Well, what was the driving force to writing that book? Okay. This is a pretty cool story. I think um, I had been putting together ideas for my kids and for the kids of my clients and, uh, you know, my a client would call me up and said, you know, 
Judy's graduating from University of North Carolina. He doesn't listen to a word I say. And I started putting these ideas together. And I, at the time, was on the board of trustees of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And the director of athletics asked me to come and speak to about 30 kids who were both varsity award winners, winners and superstar athlete, uh, academics, 30 mixed kids, boys and girls, men and women, whatever the deal is. And so I brought with me this untitled monograph, double, double space, double page, spiral bound. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to give everybody a gift. And the guy said, speak for 20 minutes. And I knew that meant 12 and so I said to everybody, I said, look, at, here's a little gift for you guys when you go out in the big, bad world, because they're all seniors. And unbeknownst to me, they started making copies for themselves, their friends, family, whatever. And all of it, some of it, most of it got in the hands of a book packager in California. He called me up and he said, Jeffrey, I think you have a book. I said, great. And then so we got to come up with a name for it because it hadn't been titled. And I came up with how to become CEO. And then uh, two weeks later, he got me an agent, which is amazing. And her name is Doris Michaels. She's since retired. and She was amazing. And Doris calls me up and she said, Jeffrey, this was two weeks later. I said, wow. Um, and uh, two weeks later, he, she said, I've got some exciting news. And I said, what is that? She, had, she said, well, we have a $50,000 offer to publish your book in the United States. And I said, 50,000, is that Yankees five, Red Sox two, thought Yankees five, Red Sox four. But she goes, well, it's a very good offer, uh, uh, good offer for, a, you know, a non-celebrity author. I said, okay, I'll think about it. So it's seven minutes to 12 on the same day. And I used to walk around the office, say, did my agent call? Did my agent call? I mean, like I was a Hollywood guy. And she called and she said, Jeffrey, I got amazing news. And I said, what is it? She goes, well, we have a preemptive offer to publish your book, The Rights of How to Become CEO in the U.S. for $125,000. And I said, what is a preemptive offer? And she said, well, if you don't agree to this by three o'clock this afternoon, the offer disappears. You want to think about it? I go, yeah, I'll think about it. I'll take it. So I took that. And that's how we got started. And that book was a New York Times bestseller. It's been published in 50 languages, I don't know, all over the world. And it led to subsequent books, now, that publisher at the time was Hyperion. They've been acquired, uh, and my book titles now reside with other some other publishers. But that's how I get started. So I stand vindicated. I, I've been right all along listening to this book every year since 2014. Yeah, um, that, that's cool. That is a fascinating story. Uh, by the way, and you already know this, this could easily be uh, how to become CFO, how to yeah. become – CMO, yeah. How to become mm-hmm. CHR? You, you get the CRO. It could be how to become just a manager. Every th- th- this book is universal for any well, role. Know, thank, thank you for saying that. You know, I do get a lot of letters, which is interesting, from the military. I've gotten letters from every branch, including the Coast Guard, saying you should write this book for officers or officers to be, and you know you'd have to you know, militarize it a little bit, but so, so your, your point is on and, uh, but I just keep moving around to what interests me. You know what I mean? I'm kind of, I, I am listening to my audience out there cause they are really asking me to write a book and I've started it on how to sell professional services and, uh, you know, like an accountant, a lawyer, consultant, um, that kind of thing, which I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, I started on it. So even though I love this book, 
Do before I tell you the one thing I slightly disagree with. Yeah. If you were rewriting, uh, let's not say rewriting. If you were doing an update of this book, would you change anything to it? Yes. And coincidentally, by the way, in a week ago, I've got a new editor, a bright young guy at Hachette, which has acquired many of my titles, H-A-T-C-H-E-T-T-E. It's one of the largest in the world. Yes. And this guy, Sam Rain, has said to me, Jeffrey, we want to come out with a new idea. We want to publish your first three books, which were all bestsellers, of course, uh, How to Become CEO, how to become a rainmaker, how to become a great boss. We want to do it in one book, an omnibus book. Wow. Yeah. Wow. is right. And I said, I'm game. And they said, to ask the same question you asked, would you update anything? And I said, yes. And for example, I think in all three books, we have to come, we have to talk about the advent of social media, right. the good and the bad of that. Right. We have to, we really, even though I did allude to it and how to become CEO that earthquakes don't count. I think we have to uh, allude, uh, spend some time on the pandemic, uh, real, whatever anybody thinks, whatever. Uh, it really uprooted the way people do business. That's for certain. And I think there's some other things in there. For example, I'm going to put in how to become CEO when I upgrade it. It's not going to be, re- it's going to be added to. I want to put in something that's been a theory of mine for years and I didn't have it at the time. But I think there are two, the two loneliest jobs in the world, in my view, are how to become CEO and how to be a baseball pitcher on the mound when you're by yourself. And the loneliest job in the world is CEO. That means that people who want to become CEO have to understand that. And so I'm adding that. I'm adding it early in the book, actually, uh, in the update. And it is, in fact, true for all your listeners. A CEO, whether you're the CEO of a, wa- you're a waiter of a table or you're an Uber driver, uh, you that's the loneliest job in the world because everybody around you, your executives, your board, everybody has a personal agenda and it may not be yours as the CEO. So, and you see this all the time. People give advice that may or may not be in the best interest of the CEO. It may be in the best interest of the advice giver. And so at Fox and Company, now Fox Business Advisors, uh, brutally objective about the kind of advice we give our clients. It's always fact-based, database. It's candid. It's polite, but it can be can be unsettling. Great. So I'm going to add that all that to the book. Great point, and I love the analogy of the pitcher on the mound all alone. Okay. Great. So the the one slight disagreement I have, and it's yep. at, it's at the very beginning. Yep. But now that I know that you originally going to write this for your kids. Right. Now I understand some of the context, but my one disagreement is taking the most money that you can get. And here again, this is my perspective. I'm not saying I'm right. And this is not a value judgment, but you suggest take the most money and your reasons are compelling in the book. But I'm thinking, especially if you're a young CEO let's say you're talented enough to be that CEO in your early to mid thirties. My question is, is the goal money at this juncture or is it learning? And I might at times say, go somewhere where you can learn more. The money's going to eventually follow. So that's kind of my, my, my soft, uh, disagreement. It's a, I think it's a good observation. Um, I, I, I put that advice in there for, other reasons than what you right. learned. I will tell you this though, Mark, and that is that all over the country, because I'm people 
I, I do these articles in magazines. I don't even speak the language like Capital in Turkey and all over the, all over the civilized world, if we can say that, and the, certainly the business world, you see the life of the CEO really declining. Uh, the average life of a CEO is three to five years now. And, and that's because the problems are so difficult and, and everything else. So I think sometimes, you know, I'll be very practical. If you go into a, a CEO now and you have a $300,000 comp package and the other guy has a $400,000 comp package, when the bar- board gets rid of you, who's going to get the most money? Right. The guy with the board. Yeah. And so I, I, I know it's a little crass, but it's a good yardstick. Um, and, and I try to make people understand how, how the salary and compensation plan rolls. I mean, you've got t- 10% of, bonus 10% of 300 is less than 10% of 400 etc cetera, etc cetera. so it is a good it's a good observation a good criticism um but i'm sticking with it and, and again i complete i understand good good point this entire book and i in, in our interview arc that i shared with you i use the term big ideas but yeah. there is just a ton of wisdom In fact, you wrote a lot of the things that are either A, I already believe in, or shared with other uh, people in leadership positions. And if you don't mind, I want to hit some of these. It's going to be kind of like a lightning round. So some of the, and I I may be cheating because I'm trying to scrunch a bunch in such a short time period. But your concept of think one hour a day. And I'm going to have to run the idea notebook. Yeah. That is, in my opinion, underrated. And you will not right. get that advice in a lot of other CEO type books. But the think one hour a day, that is great, great yeah. advice. It's wisdom. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I, I, I agree. And, and as many of the things that when I write in my book, you'll, people will say, like my mother before she passed, she said, Jeffrey, these ideas are obvious. I said, yeah, mom, but no one does them. Right. And so, so thinking for one hour a day uh, is, you know, you'll see all these other kind of crazy things about meditation and all that jazz, whatever. But I think thinking an hour a day, taking one problem, like every morning I walk my dog here on the island where there are no cars, no roads, so to say, they're just sand shell streets. And I'm thinking about something. I'm thinking about today's interview with you, or I'm thinking about a problem for a client or what I could put in a new book or something like that. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, the, you know, I like to sit down and think with a piece of paper, like my idea notebook idea, which I carry with me uh, and I transcribe. And now I can just hit the idea in my phone. I write a text to myself, you know, and leave a, a note to myself. It's my idea notebook. Um, 
in a million years ago when I was starting out, I maybe this somebody told me this or maybe I read it. I don't even know. There was an old anecdote in advertising that said, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. And I can tell you myself and everybody else, especially if your mind is kind of always like boiling, you have lots of ideas that you forget. And the ideas could be lousy. I had a really wicked lousy idea the other day and I saw it in my idea notebook yesterday and I said, I got to tear that out. And what I was doing was I was taking out of the refrigerator because we cook, I cook a little bit down here and jelly was in front of pickles on the jar. Somebody in our, one of the kids put pickles up and then put a jelly jar of jelly in front of it. Why would jelly be in front of pickles? There's a million uses for pickles. There's only one or two uses for jelly. It should be in the back. So I wrote a little idea notebook thing and I looked at that and said, oh, that's dumb. But at any rate, that was, that's a nice, that's, so you don't have to use them all. You said something, I want to back up the truck. You said something that's very subtle and it may have been missed. You take your idea notebook with you everywhere. Oh, yeah. So, that, so oh, yeah. it's not something you just have at home or at your desk at the office. It's everywhere. Well, I, I, I have, a, I have a, a backup system. So what I do is I'm in my office or home or on the road. I have the actual physical handwritten notebook, physically. If we were on video, I'd show it to you. But it, when I'm walking and I, or I'm driving or I'm or at the store someplace and I come up with an idea, I just email it to myself. And I transcribe that and expand it. Another thing I do, which is part of the thinking every day, I, I walk. If I'm walking by myself, I compose short stories in my mind. That's short correct. stories, fictional little little stories, and I compose them in my mind. I compose them in my mind. Compose them. Then when I get home, I I make I write them up as little short stories. It's just to keep my mind different. You follow me? I, I think do. It, I think people have to look at things differently all the time, not the way you always would. But I always say, okay, how would the competitor look at this? How would the customer look at this? How would my friend look at this? And and so going back to one of your earlier things about the book in the beginning, every, no matter what, it doesn't matter what it is, if I have an editor or a reader that says, I don't quite get that, I change it. I never argue. I never argue. I, like your thing about the take most money. I've made a mental note, actually wrote it down. I'm going to put something in the book to straighten that out because what you had was a legitimate criticism, you know, and, and why should you, it, it doesn't want to make it so crap. So I take those ideas and I listen to the customer period. By the way, with all due respect, sir, yeah. Yeah. it's not a criticism. It's just, a, it was a perspective. It's an observation. Uh, I, 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 I don't, when I use the word criticism, I use it in the Broadway sense. And in other words, it's not you did it wrong. It's that you have another point of view, which is like, for example, in my first book, How to Become CEO, I had a chapter in there that said Friday is Hey Baby Day. That was the original thing. It's the only thing my editors changed at the time. And Hey Baby was an expression from when I grew up playing baseball. Hey, babe, how you doing? Right. And and Willie Mays was, hey, the Willie, the babe. So they made me change it to Friday is how's it going day. Okay. Okay. Banal, not as good as Hey Baby Day. But they, my editor's a woman, my publisher's a woman, my wife's a woman, the girls and family got it. Okay. It's, they think it's sexist. I had never occurred to me for a second that it was sexist. They said it was. So I changed it to what they suggested. 
By the way, real quickly on the idea notebook, and I, I use notebooks as well. I keep one in my F-150 at all times, uh, but I want to share something else. Uh, this is where we call it theater of the mind, but uh, I have in my hand an index card. And on one side of the index card is an inverted T. It doesn't go all the way down to the index card, but on the left side is big idea. And on the right side are my three reasons for my big idea. Mm-hmm. And down below, next steps. And then if you turn it over, what happens if I don't follow up on this big idea? And then of the big ideas I really like, they're in this binder clip. There you go. And, and so now I get to pull them out. And these are the ones I, I am going to implement. I still have the notebooks. But again, your your concept of the idea notebook, I just think is ingenious. And it, 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 it's very helpful. And, and I think I might've gotten the idea when I was a kid uh, in high school and college, especially in high school, I read everything about, you know, biographies of people. And I remember reading about Leonardo da Vinci having notebooks and the brightest guy that ever lived had a notebook. Why shouldn't the rest of us do that? Now I didn't realize his notebooks were like designing the anatomy of a human being or a submarine. I mean, he was out there. That is a good idea. So I did it. That's why it's in there. Uh, Bill Gates likes those notebooks, too. I think he owns some of them. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah. The The other big idea in this book is, and I, this may be out of order, but you mentioned networking. And again, right. th- this, this, this is where you're talking to your mom. She says, son, that is so obvious. Yeah. But again, this cannot be understated the concept of networking, especially as you're working your way up the career ladder. Exactly. I mean, and everybody is a customer. That's the way I look at it. Everybody can influence you or people around you negatively or positively. I remember putting on a first international sales meeting ever for the Loctite Corporation in the 80s. We had 361 people from all over the world. I was the only person in the room who had talked to or met every other one of the 361 people. That's important because, but because what you're doing is you're creating friends out there, or at least you're neutralizing potential competitors. I don't consider the enemies, but competitors. And, and even now, for example, what I've been doing now with COVID and everything, I've been taking an hour. I was going to say a day, but that'd be a lie an hour a week. And just going through my contact list and calling up people I haven't talked to in years. That's great. Now, now one of the problems, and this is going to sound, I don't want to sound improper, but because now people I know the old days in high school, college or whatever, whatever, they say, oh, he's a New York Times bestseller. They have a different perspective of me than they used to. I haven't changed a bit, not a single bit. And so when I have to call these people back, sometimes there's a little kind of like 10 second ice thin ice and then click it's a gone. And so I think that's pretty good too, because calling people, I've got, I've got a list of three people I'm calling today who I haven't talked to in years. And one of them is a good, an older guy that lives in Chicago. He's a terrific, terrific fellow. And, and I, I know he's by himself. So I'm going to call. And I, I think that's part of sort of post networking maybe, or whatever that's called, you know? And so I, I do that. I want to make, May I make a suggestion on the networking? Of course, naturally. We have, speaking of social media earlier, LinkedIn is a place where a lot of 
young people, CEOs are going to congregate. And I get probably 30 to 50 connection requests. And I keep thinking, you're screwing this up. You have a great opportunity here. So when I think of networking, I think of three buckets. And I think you've got the same three buckets. Uh, Bucket number one are my future mentors. A lot of those future mentors do become mentors. Yeah. Now we can only have maybe 15 to 20 uh, mentors, but the people that five, I five, if you're lucky. Yeah. And I look back when I was 30 years old, I did not know I was doing this at the time, but a lot of these connections do become a mentor. These are the people you can pick up the phone and say, I've got a problem or I got an issue, yeah. but that's bucket number one. Uh, bucket number two are what I call the connectors, which I, I would love. And by the way, in your book, you talked about, your system of names. And, and uh, I bet you have a lot of connectors in your database, people that can, Hey, I I would like to get to know this person. Can you make a connection? Which is, and then the third one is the list that no one talks about. It's what I call the refer to the refer to network where, whether it's bankers, uh, attorneys, in your case, publicists, who are some names that I need to know that I can refer people to. So when I right. thought about networking, I just thought of those three buckets. But again, I, I want to throw kudos to you because this is so underrated in, in my perspective. It totally is. And, and for example, to make the leap to show how important what you just said is for your listeners, in selling professional services, which is way harder than selling a, a, a gasket or a, or a, a valve, because you can't taste it, taste, smell it, touch it, whatever. The key, the number one marketing key to selling professional services is referrals. And so if you get, if, if someone says, you know, uh, Mark, uh, I was referred to you by Mark's, that's so much more powerful than trying to make a relationship with somebody you don't know. People are flattered to be asked for referrals. A lot of salespeople don't know that. People want to, it gives them a sense of influence, a sense of prestige. It's just that so many salespeople don't know how to ask for referrals, which is going to be in the new book. And that is the same part of networking in a way. You know, what's the networking about? It's always about something for them. When people call about themselves to me, I'm turned off by that. But I think you can when you network, you're always trying to give to get. Right. And, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a a quid pro quo on the face of it, but it has to be, you know, sharing of ideas. I have a big problem with a a client has a big problem. I've got to help figure it out. And it's in financial. So who do I call? I call three of my Harvard business school classmates who I know were whizzes in finance. And they gave me boom, 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 boom. Not exactly how to fix it, but how to ask the questions to facilitate it so the client executives can come to understand how much cash they should have on their balance sheet at $100 million in sales. Okay, that's a networking. So when you go to a special college, you have a fraternity or you're in a rugby club or whatever, everybody in that club is should be somewhere in your network, whether it's in your contact list or whatever. So it's so underrated, but it's so impactful. You know, one word 
from the guy and you're in. Great point. Again. Or out. I have, I'm trying to pick which one do I want to do next. Let's do the one big thing annually. And I sense right now you're living on an island, which I think is cool about we, we, you estimate about 1200 people on this island off the at, floor. At, at full, full capacity. At full capacity. During, during COVID, there was a hundred. You're, you're a guy that played rugby in college. I haven't checked to see if you're missing any teeth. Um, I broke you, my leg. <laughs> you, you, you've worked in the wine industry. So yes. I have a, I have this idea that you've done a lot of neat and different and cool things. Yeah. But in the book, you say do one big thing annually, annually. Why is that in the book, which I think is cool? Well, you mentioned earlier about, and when you're talking about the money thing, about uh, learning, continuously learning. And so when I say add one big thing to your life every year, that is a subset of continuous learning. Okay. And it can, depending on your age and your mobility, there could be a million things. So for example, one of the things I added and continue to add to was I learned to cook. I didn't learn to cook fabulously necessarily. I'm not trying to be a chef. And, and then, you know, I consider adding a book a year, one new thing. I, cause we live on this Island and all the other guys around here fish, my kids fish, my son, my grandkids fish. I don't really fish. So I said, okay, I'll learn to fish. And then from March through August or whatever, during COVID, I'm out at the end of the runway with other guys fishing they're catching fish right and left. You know how many fish I caught in four months? Zero. However, I was out there. I think adding things to your life, learning to play the piano, learning to write an essay, all the things we hear about but don't do, really kind of keep your mind going and you get big, bigger and better at it. You know, I was actually fooling around with uh, going back to learning Latin recently. I That's think, hard. I think well, I took Latin in high school for a while, but I think there's so many things that we hear that the Romans, of course, you know, the Latin probably started to die out in 436, 436 AD, but so many, they were able to capture phrases in Latin that have stood the test of time. You know what I mean? And I think that's of interest to me. So I figure my goal is a hundred phrases. When I was, age 38, 37, I had the authorization to spend upwards to 25 or $26 million. I not only borrowed a million dollars out of that bucket, I then spent it. What I didn't do was I didn't ask permission first, even though I had the authority. So the next day, not only did I apologize, I said I was wrong. Now, if I were to share all the context, you'd say, actually, you probably didn't need to do that, but I still did. I'll never forget what happened. When I said I was wrong, they started kind of getting defensive on my behalf. It's like, I think we're so psychologically numb to people defending themselves, being defensive, they're not used to people saying, I was wrong. But in your book, you say, admit fault. You get a standing ovation every time I hear that. Well, 
I'm glad you, you put your finger on it, especially in today's U.S. world or the intergeopolitical world internationally. If someone would do what JFK did, John F. Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs, he, you know, the Bay of Pigs operation was in place before he became president, but he approved it. And it was a complete disaster. And he got up in front of the press and said, I did it. My mistake. It was a failure. Any more questions? And it was done. And, and if, if when you can't say I made a mistake or I'm sorry about this, then that means you can't change that, that decision, even if it's wrong. I mean, there have got to be people in Washington today that are saying we did this and we, and facts show us that that's wrong. If the, anybody had courage, they would say, we made a mistake. It was wrong. Here's what we're doing. No, America would give them 400 votes. But when they try to say, well, they prevaricate and, and the other guy did it and I inherited this and everything. You know what they get? Zero. So everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. But I tell my guys all the time, nobody, unless they're demented, comes to work and says, today, I want to really screw up in front of all my colleagues. Right. Today, I want to make the biggest mistake in the world. I had this basketball coach when I was in high school. He was as dumb as a rock in a river. And I, I take a shot, a foul shot or something, miss it, and come over in the, for the uh, timeout. And the guy says to me, Fox, why did you miss that shot? I said, Coach, I'll tell you why. Because there's 5,000 kids in this gym, and my mother's here, and uh, my girlfriend's here or whatever, and I wanted them to see me miss the shot. Nobody comes to work. And so when they make a mistake, it's a mistake. Right. They didn't do it on purpose. Now, maybe they should have thought it through better. Maybe they should have asked for permission or they should have alerted. But you learn from that. You learn from that. Okay, from now on, I'll just send you an email saying, I think I'm going to nick a, a million bucks out of this kitty for this project. That's just way life is. And everybody in the world knows the guy made a mistake and he knows he made a mistake and he knows everybody knows he made a mistake. Get it out of the way. Get it out of the way. Because you can't hide an elephant. I agree. I cannot put my finger on it, but there's just something cathartic about those three little words, not just for the person saying them, but for the person receiving them. I was wrong. Now I'm taking you out. Fresh air, you can start all over. Exactly. Boom. You buried it. And that that kind of leads to the next comment that I really enjoyed in your book. By the way, I want to be transparent yeah. on this next one, negative emails. Early in my career, I've sent a few. Yeah. Not anymore. Right. I've also been on the receiving end of right. negative emails. And, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking from chief executive officers oh, yeah. who've sent out a mass email that had some very terrible undercurrents to it. Right. There's a reason why this is in the book. Watch, do not send negative emails. You've seen it, haven't you? Oh, I have. Never send a negative email. Never. You're not going to win. You're just going to harden the other guy's position. Write it out if you want. Print it out, but put it in your drawer and sit on it. Sit on it, and then you'll finally look at it two days later and say, thank God I did that. Because you can't win. Great advice. All you can do is throw gas on a fire. And it's the class thing to be above it. 
a guy sent me, I have a joint venture with this couple of guys and another thing. And this guy sent me an email. It, it still infuriates me to this minute. And I got it four weeks ago. He implied that I had siphoned money out of the deal or something. I didn't, didn't come close to it. And he, he has his facts wrong. Of course, I'm so tempted to answer him instead I'm shaming him. I'm shunning him. I'm not answering him. I'm not going to, as like one of my, one of my chapters in one of the books came from the Chikawa Indians. They say the eagle does not go into the hole after the rat. And that's about dignity and staying above the thing and all this kind of stuff. And it's the same thing with personal concourse and communications. What do you win by doing it? Nothing. And so I also say in one of my other books, you don't don't accuse and don't criticize. I mean, if you accuse, you, you, if you have the facts, have them arrested or whatever. But you can't accuse people. Uh, you can't win on that either. And so I say don't ever belittle because it makes you look little when you do that. You look like a bully or you look like an elitist. And people get it. They get it. So there's no need for it. And, and, uh, and you see it all the time and not just CEOs, you see it from wannabes and right. How's this going to look in front of the board in three years when you're up for, you know what I mean? And the, and the, and the other big mistake is I'll see CC'd all these. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. This is a private conversation between you. And plus it needs to be face to face as well. But again, this is brilliant that you added Let me give this. you, you Go just ahead. reminded me, you just made, maybe trigger something. You asked early, early on, if we're going to update the books. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, and one of them is social networking and all this kind of stuff, emailing and texting. Okay. Here's what I'm recommending to my clients. I'm putting it in the book. And so everybody, all your listeners have a preview. Always say who you are when you send a text. Don't assume the guy is going to remember that your number is, you know, nine, seven, nine, da, 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 da. They're Good not point. They got a thousand of them. You always have to say who you are. doesn't matter if you email the guy 50 times a day. Also, if you write a, an email in a letter form and not a text and you say, give me a call right next to it, put your telephone number. Don't have the guy go down to the bottom and scroll around, look for an hour. That's just common sense, but no one does it. And I think that's a major way to, to make, the email and social media and all these things easier to do easier. Everybody's constantly looking, Oh, you got to do this, this Google, this and do all these kind of systems just to organize stuff. If you just said what you wanted, people would get it. So I'm upgrading that too. always put your name and your phone and your text and your emails. I have a, save, save the guy a second. I have a lot more items on my list, but I'm going to, I'm going to cut it off at just one more. I still have, because of my journals, Yeah, some of my journals have become very thick. Yeah. I, I still have every handwritten note of a CEO or someone of significance. Uh, one person actually sent me a placard that has the words, do not worry. It's, it's from a verse in the New Testament yeah. because, because it's something we both have talked about and, yeah. we, and we can relate to. But every handwritten note I've ever have received, I've kept it. That's yeah. in your book, right? Yeah. 
handwritten notes in a very electronic world. Again, brilliant. And I'm high fiving, high fiving you. And today, and I wrote that before we had such an electronic right. uh, overwhelming. Today, the handwritten note is a point of difference par excellence. Yes. No one does it. I have in my in my travel bag, I have printed out cards with good and good stationery with my name and envelopes, and I put a stamp on it and I write, Dear Mark, great interview. Thank you very much. I stop at bookstores. Uh, in a book, a book, an Atlanta bookstore, and I say to the guy, "Oh, thank you very much for showing me my books. That I appreciate. It. What's the name of your boss? Give me your name of your boss." And I get the thing, and I write to the boss saying, "So and so, that bookstore is terrific." You know. So I write, I write this. One of my books is called Rain: What a Paperboy Learned About yes. Business. It's different than my other books. I like it, by the way. And, well, one of my thank you. One of my readers was Jack Welch. Okay, and so I get a note from Jack Welch, handwritten note. From Jack Welch. You still have it. Huh? You still have it. He says, Jeffrey, look at, I I loved your book rain, but I had a, I had to quit being a paper boy because I, because I have a chapter in there called mean dogs and which is both real for a paper boy and a metaphor for business later. He's, I had to quit because I was afraid of the mean dogs. I wrote him back. He said, Jack, I could blackmail you into the dark ages with this, with this. And so how about that? You re- he could have written 100,000 emails to his people. This one handwritten note is the cheapest currency on the planet. And people, I just read the other day where was, my son sent me an, an article. I think his name is Blake, the guy that just retired as chairman of the board of a uh, CEO of Home Depot. He spends he, he said he spends weekends writing 100 thank you notes. Holy cow. 100. You it's know how, how important that is? It reminds me of Picasso, uh, Pablo Picasso. This, this is probably anecdotal, but in the old days, a lot of the painters didn't have money. And there's a famous, famous restaurant in in uh, France where, you know, Pablo Picasso would always write his bills up with a check, you know, like to the grocery store, you know, $84, Pablo Picasso, because the signature was on it. Those checks were never cashed. So... <laughs> This reminds me of the Zig Ziglar story. It's like Zig writing those notes of thank you and gratitude. You're, you can't change the world when you just send a few out. But he says, but son or daughter, it means the world to them. And, really? and just what, what Jack Welch, the late Jack Welch did for you, that, that had to mean the world to you. And of course, oh, yeah. He read my books. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, it, it, to that point, I'm asked all the time by authors all the time. Will I write a a testimonial on the book jacket or something like that? 100% of the times I say yes. And I will tell you, knowing the publishing business and knowing lots of authors and they're, that's rare. That's rare. Most guys say, well, I'm too great for that. No, I don't read the books. Of course. I just say, I say to the author, well, give me some, give me some uh, testimonies you'd like me to say. And then I, Sign my name to him. That's cheap. You know what? It helps the guy. Then, and or you know, or they'll every time I get a, a fan letter, except when I get them from overseas, they think I speak Israeli and Chinese and Turkish. I don't, but my books have been translated in all those languages, so the readers are think that I, no matter what the guy writes me, I always write a thank you back. They say, "Oh, I read your book and I appreciate it." Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And then I might add, you know, I got. Twelve other books you could buy too, but I, I sometimes add that actually. 
It's so powerful. Well, sir, I want you to uh, promote the heck out of anything. Tell me about your other books. And you mentioned your consulting work. You've got the floor. Well, I think that's very kind of you. For your listeners, um, I I write my books to be read. And um, one of the publishers told me one time, he said, you know, Jeffrey, people are trying to copy how to write these. And you know, most people don't write them to be read. I write mine so that they could be understood starting with at 12 years old. Okay. And so I've written, I think I've written uh, on my name now, 12 to 13. I'm not exactly sure. I've ghost written two books for CEOs. And if there's any CEOs listening to this that would like a ghost, I can do it. Um, and I've done it at being asked by my client CEOs. And I'm working on a couple of new books now coming out, um, a children's book, kind of, not really, children children of all ages. And then the new book that I'm hopefully will be coming out in a year or so uh, called Fees, F-E-E-S, How to Sell Professional Services. And this omnibus book that Hachette's going to put out, that'll be fun. They, they think that'll come out early next year. So I'm in, you know, Fox Business Advisors still out there kicking around. If people have problems pricing their products, it's because they don't know the dollarized value of that. And that's how to, how to learn that is an important thing. I think. I ask every guest this question. And by the way, this was not on your interview arc. I do know that you are a reader in the book. You have a book list of yeah. books that should be. Uh, right. Now I will, I will be curious. Will the uh, Webster's dictionary be in the update? Cause I will say this. I, in, in, I would say age 40 before, where I had physical offices, I had a Webster's dictionary oh, yeah. and I still have a physical copy here in today's sure. electronic world. Uh, well, it's, 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 you know, the media is not the message, right? You know, no matter what that guy wrote a million years ago, he said the media is the message that was wrong, but whatever is that, I forgot his name, but that aside. So the books like Webster's dictionary that still exists. It just exists. Electronic right. form. I'm sure if you wanted to, you could go buy a book. But but the point of that is not the book per se. It's that you learn vocabulary, new words, how to speak. Right. And even writing today, you'll you'll go on Google or something like that. You know, give me – I saw a word the other day, T-W-E-E, twee. I never saw that word before. So what do I do? I do what 99.9% of readers don't do. I look it up. And twee means kind of old, quaintly archaic or something like that. Oh, oh, the movie was a bit twee, but it's good to watch. I mean, okay. So so that's what those books are, that list of books I have in there. And uh, Obvious Adams is one. Great book. Uh, Great book. Uh, yeah. Uh, that that I was the number one purchaser of that book for clients uh, from the family, up to Graph family, until I came out with my books. And now I tell everybody I give them my book instead of that one. And I also like The, the Sun Also Rises. Um I, I did a tongue-in-cheek essay on it that got rejected by everybody. But is it Hemingway? That, is it Hemingway? Is yeah, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, okay. he he. Book, one of the books that your listeners might be interested in for commercial reasons was The Old Man and the Sea. Ernest Hemingway was really angry with with um, critics who panned his prior novel. Said, "Not oh, the hell with them. I'm going to write a book just to make money, just to make money. Forget literature. Forget this." And he wrote Old Man and the Sea which not only was a bestseller for 26 weeks on the New York times, but it made a lot of money and he used every cliche there was, you know, he even mentions Joe DiMaggio 
in the book. So it's a novella. It's easy to read. But if you read it from a commercial standpoint, like this guy is deliberately trying to sell books. I mean, he's got religious metaphors. He's got the, the old man. He's got everything. And and he also wrote The Sun Also Rises, of course. But but, but Hemingway, Hemingway was great because what you learned from him was the how to be terse, how to be un, uh, unfluttered and uncluttered and with your language and get to the point. And Ernest Hemingway would say, you render an idea. You don't tell the reader that idea. You don't say, I'm thirsty, but he would have the guy crawling through a desert, the sun beaten down. And, and so, so writers, if you will, really can't be writers until they're readers, in my view. And I'm trying to help people. Again, it was written for my children, right? And you read these books, you'll be better off. And so that's why that list is in there. And, speaking and, I, read them all, and I read them all, by the way, in high school. I was going to speak, speaking of lists, then what are some of your favorite books? Looking back, what are some of your favorite books? Or is it in this list? No, my favorite books would be trashy books that are like, you know, um, uh, like mystery books and crime and everything. I read What's a wrong lot with of books. Those? I, I, those are great. I, I, I read every. I read for entertainment and I read for, I read for uh, education. I'm reading uh, right now the, uh, the one of the biographies, Alexander Hamilton. I'm not reading the whole thing. It's like seven million pages. Yes, but I do read parts of it and very interested in history. And uh, so I I read a lot of books. I don't even remember many times that the authors or the titles, but I've read, and when a movie comes on, I say, Hey, I read that book. <laughs> and so I think your listeners should be uh, hip to try to read more if they can, uh, you know, and you, you really can't write a, I mean, I went to when I, my application to college uh, when I was at high school, I, I was accepted my junior year. My application to college was, why do you want to come to college? And I wrote, because I would like to learn to read, write and speak English better end of essay. And somebody else would write 50 pages, right? On their essay, thinking 50 pages is better than one line. But as Gustav Flaubert said in 1851, he wrote Madame Bovary, of course, he said in 1851, it's no easy business being simple. So when you read an Ernest Hemingway, when you read a Thomas Jefferson, when you read these guys, uh, Machiavelli, the prince, they get to the point. Right. They get to the point and getting to the point is hard. But if you're going to be a CEO, you got to get to the point, whether it's a one page or one sentence handwritten note or it's a speech to the to the shareholders. You can't write that speech. You can't get up and give that speech unless you've fairly carefully written down what who's your target audience? What do they care about? What, what should I say? How can I be genuine? How can I be authentic? You won't see that. Uh, in the State of the Union speech coming up, you won't see that. And everybody, if you did, everybody in America would understand instantly. They understand the travail of being the CEO of the biggest enterprise in the world. And and so, but you can't do that unless you think it through and write it out and get to the point. It's better to write one sentence that people remember than a book that they don't read. That is excellent. Jeffrey, this has been, I, I have enjoyed this. This has been a lot of fun. Promise me when the next book, books come out, we get to talk again. Yeah, no, but by all means, I will. Great, great interview, by the way. Thanks. 
You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Jeffrey Fox, I want to do that again. How to Become CEO, an audio book I listen to annually. Some of his other books are How to Become a Rainmaker, How to Become a Great Boss, The Dollarization Principle. I'm going to be checking that one out uh, sometime this summer. And then also Rain, What a Paperboy Learned About Business. And we heard about that title earlier in the conversation, and there are more. Just check out Jeffrey's Amazon author page. Hey, let's wrap this up with five questions to consider after hearing from Jeffrey Fox. Number one, jobs and money. Do you always take the job with the most pay? Why or why not? Number two, have you ever sent a negative email. I mean, ever. Looking back, what would you have done differently? Here's a yes, no question, but one to either get you thinking or to validate a current action. When you see or hear a new word, do you look it up? And we're not done. And do you try to start using it periodically. Number four, I mentioned the three buckets of people in your network, mentors, connectors, and the referred to network. Which bucket needs to be filled up? And I'm talking quality people in these three buckets. And then number five, What's the one big thing you'll do this year? Guys, we need to call this a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Jones of The Table Group and the author of Ordinary Greatness, available wherever fine books are sold. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. I do not let seven days go by without listening to this podcast.